0: Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup, the world's only podcast that compares World Cup football with the politics of the nations involved. My name is Dominic Archer and with me, as always, is one of the most handsome men that I know, if I, if you don't mind me saying it, Mr. David Bryan.
1: Well, I do mind, Dom, because you're putting yourself down. Oh, we, well, we all know said- you're the most handsome of the two of us. No, oh, well, please, I'm, mean, no, no, I'm, flustered now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought so, you were unflappable
0: as well. <laughs> You've just been am, flapped. You know, I, I can't take compliments. It's one of, it's one of the, one of my many, or uh, I should say, few flaws. One of my few flaws is my modesty, as, as you well know. <laughs> uh, but Dave, I, I have, I have a bit of a story to tell you. Since we last spoke, we have. Ooh, um, I'd
1: love to hear a story.
0: Yeah, well, you know. As I say every episode, uh, the 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 games in in the World Cup in Russia are not timed particularly well for my sleeping pattern. Often, I, I at the moment I get to watch one game in the evening, and then I have to sleep through the next one, which is really unfortunate. Um, what was even more unfortunate was that yesterday the two a.m. game for me was Colombia versus England, and I thought. Should I stay up for what will undoubtedly be England's last game in the World Cup? I <laughs> thought, no, I don't wanna watch, you know, I don't want I don't wanna to have to try and go to sleep feeling embarrassed and so I thought I'm gonna go I am I'm, I'm just gonna sleep. So I went to bed and was resigned to watching the highlights in the movie. But at 4 a.m. I woke up and 4 a.m. is the exact time where the match normally where they come to an end. So I thought, oh, I woke up at 4 a.m., I'll turn on the TV and just see the results. I turn on the TV. And it's bloody extra time. And there's oh. another half an hour of football to watch and then penalties. So on the one hand, I'm glad I did actually get to see uh, the England game. On the other hand, I have no idea what happened in that England game except for how <laughs> it finished. So what did happen in the England game for me to be able to watch the extra time?
1: Well, Dominic, what what a story we have. <laughs> um, it was... A very tense evening for me um as i've mentioned before i've just moved house so i don't have any tv or even wi-fi um facilities up and running for me to stream the games um so i got into contact with my brother and basically insisted that i go around to his house to watch the game <laughs> watch the game with him and something about watching the game with another person makes the tension whether it exists or not so much more heightened mm. you're you're feeding off each other's energy and we're cre- creeping closer and closer to the edges of our seats as the game goes on. Um, but as we have seen with a lot of games at this World Cup, not much happened in the first half. Uh, England seemed to be in control. Um, Colombia didn't seem to pose that many threats, but it was just that almost classic England feeling of, oh, this is taking too long. Like, with all this control we're having, if we don't start being clinical and don't start putting our chances away, it's going to be one of those tense England nights that yeah. we've uh, we've been dreading, and we've we've lived enough and suffered enough through over the years, and that's exactly how it turned out to be. It was just nice to see that when the second half kicked off, whatever words were spoken to uh, to the players by Gareth Southgate seemed to seemed to uh, hit home, and we were pushing hard a lot harder. We were much more fluid, um, and. Surely enough, we get we get the penalty. Ten minutes into the second half, and I'm getting a little bit out of breath just talking about it because it was it's too it was too tense. It's too fresh in my mind. Mm. Um, but when when the penalty is awarded, we all know Harry Kane is going to step up. And to be honest, there was never a doubt in my mind that it was going to go in. So what was frustrating was the delaying tactics if you don't, if you want to call them tactics or whether it was just pissing and moaning from the Colombian players um, about when the penalty was given and it was really I felt sorry for the American referee because he seemed to be losing control of the game um, uh, particularly at that point I wish I knew the time but the minute, how many minutes it passed between the penalty being awarded and the penalty actually being taken by Hurricane, it must have been four or five minutes of oh wow Constant beratement of the referee by the Colombian players. The the booked player who gave away the, the penalty, Claudio Sanche, Carlos Sanchez. Carlos Sanchez, I think is his name. After being booked, he just still wouldn't get out of the referee's face. And then when he was surrounded by three or four other Colombian players who were equally um, aggressive in their... Uh, in their pleads to the referee, and there so many of them were saying, "Please look at the VAR um, you could see the referee putting doing this whole hand to his ear thing he 's having a word with um, the video officials in in Moscow, and you can obviously on the television footage see that hes said no there's no there 's no question, so stop asking for var it 's not going to happen it 's been given mm-hmm. but then minutes and minutes went by of especially uh, it was getting to a point where the referee should have been um, taking a lot more uh, harsher stand with these players, they were doing exactly what players are not supposed to be, to not supposed to do, and are supposed to be punished for, which is um, dissent against the referee. So I think if the referee had full control of this game, there would have been three or four yellow cards banded out in that five-minute spell, maybe even a second yellow card for Carlos Sanchez, who refused to get to step away, and it very much was like this bullying tactic. We've seen throughout. Many years of football where players try and intimidate the referee or get in the referee's head or sway him um, with whatever tactics they can choose. And I felt the person that I was disappointed the most in that situation was Falcao, mm. who the El Tigre is obviously the great hero of Colombian football. And throughout this tournament, I've been really impressed with his leadership. Um, and we've talked about it. I don't know if we talked about it in on the podcast, Don, but we, you and I have talked about it personally. Um, about what it takes to be a captain of a, of a football yeah. team and and whether it, a lot of teams seem to just give it to their best player and not necessarily to their best leader. So with Falcao so far in this tournament, I've been impressed that while he is their their focal point, their linchpin, their hero, with that captain's armband, he also takes on the responsibility of leading his team, of being an example to his team, of organising his team, which is exactly what a captain should do. So it was a real disappointment to see that he was the one most leading this um, It's assault on the American referee in that moment, and again, he probably should have faced further, uh, stronger consequences. That that Morfin, I don't think he got a yellow card in that in that particular fracas, but um, he did get one later on in the game. So that was a real shame. But what, on the flip side, what impressed me was Harry Kane's composure, where while the referee is dealing with all these players berating him. Columbia players behind the referee's back or at least out of his vision are trying to, are scuffing up the penalty spot. I didn't see it personally but the commentary was saying we're watching Columbia players going over to the penalty spot and scuffing it up to try and make it harder for right. Harry Kane to score. And while that's happening, other Columbia players are circling Harry Kane, trying to get in his head, trying to distract him, trying to put him off. But he's just puts, puts his head down and he's slowly just walking away from the, from the Columbia players, just getting focused, getting in his place. So when he finally got to put the ball down and the referee finally got some semblance of control back, in my mind, there was never any doubt he was going to do exactly what he's done so far in this tournament, which is put the penalty away. And it was a great, another great penalty. He's not taken a bad one. So it was at that point where you're thinking, OK, England, let's do what England don't do, and that's score <laughs> a goal and... Just then, protect that lead. Mm-hmm. Why? Why England don't do it against tougher opposition? I don't think we faced an opposition this tough so far in this tournament, even including Belgium, because that was kind of a a dud game where both teams fielded um, second-string opposition to rest their first-string players. So this was our first, sorry, our strongest test so far, and it would have made it been a lot easier if we'd just scored another goal, because now it just becomes not only are you holding on to such a slender lead, which can be erased in any second, but all this extra tension that's being built up by the attitude and the behaviour of some of the Colombia players, which was just embarrassing. It was reminiscent of the first half of the Panama game, where football was taking a backseat to underhanded tactics. Being uh, overly aggressive and overly soft with when, when being tackled and, trying their best to get England players in trouble I think Jordan Henderson even got a yellow card maybe involved in that penalty incident I can't remember all of the, what the Columbia players were doing and then Jordan Henderson has one little argy barge with one of the players and the referee gives him a yellow card so that's, that is unfair speaking of unfair and uh, out of control uh, players on a pitch the referee can't get their grips on there was an incident where we, England had a free kick And there's the usual argy bargy in the wall where England players are trying to sort of disrupt that wall or stand where they're perfectly able to and allowed to on the edge of the wall, try and disrupt them a bit, give whoever's taking the free kick something to aim at so they can sort of dive out the way. And a Colombia player very clearly first sticks his head, headbutts John Henson in the chest, and then lifts his head to whack John Henson on the underside of his chin. Uh, Barrios it was. So all the replays are showing that that's clearly an intentional headbutt. That's violent conduct, and the referee couldn't see it. He was looking at the other side of the wall. But then he obviously gets told something in his ear, so he goes over to Barrios and then branches a yellow card. Most bizarre thing, so it ha- you, you're yellow carding somebody for an intentional headbutt. Mm. So that makes absolutely zero sense. That that's un, un, that's inexplicable and and. Um, Unexcusable. If he's been told in his ear that something has happened, then he can't just—he shouldn't just be taking the video officials' word that something has happened and maybe he should give him a yellow. If it's serious, like it clearly was, that should be an instance of please go check the VAR, go check the replays because you might want to make a decision about this. That's one of my criticisms about VAR: is that the final decision should always be with the referee. It should never be with the people watching in Moscow. That's no different from, you know. Uh, Mark Klattenberg, who was uh, doing the ITV referees punditry. So they are, the the guys in the studio ask his opinion um, at halftime about what happened. That's no different from him getting on the phone to the referee and going, you know what, mate, I think that was a whatever. <laughs> like the referee needs to make the final decision at every, every instance, especially serious ones like a potential red card in the knockout stages of the World Cup. So that was a real letdown and the referee didn't, do a great job of controlling the rest of the game either he dished out so many yellow cards I think Colombia ended up with six yellow cards to, to England's two um, and yeah that should have at least been a red card I think Barrios after getting yellow carded then went on to foul a number of times maybe should have got another one and all of the dissent that Colombia players are throwing in but anyway I don't want to get too caught up in that um, because I don't know if you ended up seeing, catching the very end of normal time 90, what was it, 94th minute in injury time. Uh, Columbia get a corner, which they've been dangerous from this whole tournament. And in particular, Yeri Mina, who ended up scoring from that corner. He's, I think, scored, that's three headers from corners he scored in this tournament already. So then we knew that was a danger and just that one second of switching off, that one second of switching off is what can cost you. And sat with my brother. He was getting frustrated with that whole England mentality. If we've got one, let's just sit on that. It should be, we've got one, let's go get another one.
0: When I came in, uh, I didn't get to see the the equaliser. I came in uh, two or three minutes into extra time itself. But the game I saw is not the one that you are describing, right? You Or not the the beginning of the second half as you are talking about it. The, the one that I saw was um, a dominant Colombia pushing, 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 and watching Pickford in that England goal going this is just a matter of time right it is just a matter of time until one of them slips past them and again yet again they sub on Danny Rose and I complained (laughs) about Danny Rose in the last one and in in this one I was watching him like oh Christ he had a clear chance on goal towards the end of of extra time and he just put it wide and I said uh, i was I was doing some mini commentary for the, for Steve, who edits this podcast because he was walking home from work and he uh, I, I had to, to commentate what was going on with the penalties to him as he, as he walked home, um, which was tense but uh, before that i was I was telling him about how I feel about Danny Rose and I said danny Rose hasn 't done anything that could be done better by empty space. Or couldn't be done better <laughs> by empty space, right? Like, oh. if, if Danny Rose wasn't there, it would have been just as useful to the England squad as him actually being on the pitch. So that's what I noticed. But it was that it was exactly that thing. They you're in extra time. We desperately need to get a goal and they sub on a defender. Yeah, but that was, like, that was forced,
1: geez. I think. Ashley Young had picked up a knock and they had to make a change. I, okay. don't, believe, I don't think Danny Rose would have been a chosen substitute, especially in extra time when mm. it's looking likely penalties are coming. I don't think you bring on Danny Rose if you've got a choice. No, well, that was bring, why I was confused. Yeah. yeah, you bring on what they did do about nine minutes later, which is bring on Marcus Rashford for Carl Walker, took off a defender, put on uh, a forward player, even though... Because of that change in the force with um with Danny Rose, that meant that... Because Kyle Walker was obviously playing at the back. I mean, Eric Dyer dropped from midfield back into the back three. And then Rashford, for those last, like, 10 minutes, less than 10 minutes, just playing in the midfield. Basically just there to, like, don't mess up and just get ready to take a penalty in 10 minutes because mm-hmm. that's probably what's going to happen. But the substitutions generally were were a bit uh, irritating. I, I agree. Especially when England made their very first substitution, which was in the 81st minute, which is... I know it was a tight game, but waiting to the 80th minute is almost like you're going. They could. It's almost like admitting that they could score, and mm. so you don't. You don't want to waste all your substitutions before extra time. And the substitution they make is Deli Ali, who I think has been a little bit ineffectual in this tournament on a whole. I mean, he's a very talented player, but I think playing him as part of a midfield three is not really playing to his strengths, especially when you're playing two up top. Dele Ali functions, I think, best when you've got one up top and he is one of the two supporting players, like he is for Spurs, where he has uh, Harry Kane, as England teammate, as the as the number nine and then Ali and uh, Son Hyung-min from South Korea play off him. I think with that freedom, he functions much better and maybe it's one of those instances where don't shoehorn in players into positions they're not best suited to. So what happened with the, when uh, Dele Alli was injured and... Um, Ruben Loftus Cheek played in that position instead. I think he's much better suited to that, and I think maybe if, with the next round, if Gareth Southgate looks at changes, I'd maybe like to see um, Ruben Loftus Cheek maybe start instead of Deli Alley and maybe bring Deli Ali on later as a more forward player. Who, if we need a goal, that he can start creating things and being a bit more free. Because in that th- midfield three role, he's basically just he's he's confined to doing all the hard work, which is not. He did it quite well, to be fair. He did the hard work well yesterday, but he, his creativity was not allowed to, to to be expressed. So that was a bit frustrating. So to take that creative player off, well, supposedly and usually creative player off for Eric Dyer, who is undoubtedly a holding defensive midfield player. Um, it's it's I think that summed up well. My my brother's commentary at that moment summed up the frustration I think of England fans watching England going no one nil is not enough one mm. nil. And taking a, making a defensive change at 1-0 is inviting more pressure. And that's exactly what happened in those last 10 minutes. Colombia were in charge. So when they got that equaliser in the injury time, they took that momentum into the first period of extra time, which you saw, where mm. they were being very dominant and they were peppering us and making chances. And yeah, you're wondering, can Jordan Pickford stand up to this after? But, but then having said that, I didn't get to see any replays, which is really annoying to me because I've played in goal. I know what being a goalkeeper is like. Right before the... well, What caused the corner that Columbia scored from was a shot from distance, which Jordan Pickford saved in spectacular, world-class, once-in-a-lifetime fashion. And I saw it in the moment, but I've not been able to see it again because I've not seen another replay. But it was absolutely incredible. He had no right to make that save, but he did it. And it's just really unfortunate that the goal went in from that uh, resulting corner. And so a 94th minute equaliser in the World Cup knockout group, that's going to be shown over and over again, but not mm. to say that led to it. It's that um, bias against goalkeepers, which uh, I think is, needs to be addressed by, uh, by the world's media and television uh, directors. But anyway, I am, I am digressing. Um, but at least following that defensive substitution... The following one was uh, Jamie Vardy, who came on for Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling, I I think we have mentioned before, brilliant season for Man City this year. I don't know why he's still starting for England. After the first two group games, obviously rested for the third one. I'm not sure why he's been allowed to give another chance here because he just hasn't. He's ineffectual. He's not found any form. And it was a surprise they waited so long. They waited to the 88th minute to take him off which was it's it's a bit infuriating really it's showing I mean from Raheem Sterling's point of view he could do with the confidence boost of being given that those chances and Gareth Southgate putting faith in him but for the sake of England now this is going against what I've said previously on this podcast I think now you need to remove Sterling give someone else a chance get Rashford up there maybe not Jamie Vardy I think Jamie Vardy is a better impact substitute player like he was he came on and he chased things down and Having those fresh legs because he is quick, Jamie Jamie Vardy. Having those fresh legs chasing things down against tired defenders that can make a big difference. Um, but I think it just came and all, uh, all came a bit too late, especially since he didn't even take a penalty or anything, did he? Out of the five, no, he, he's didn't, a, he's, no, he didn't. He's a striker and um, mm. yeah, Leicester, Leicester City's main goal scorer, and he'd even take a penalty after coming on just before just before mm. the uh, equalising goal. But I suppose when it comes down to it by the end of the game England have regained control that second half of of extra time was more in favour of England chances were created and it's just that nail-biting time of can you please just score please I mean chances were created like I say but I mean out of the 16 shots we had over 120 minutes only two were on target and that probably doesn't even include the penalty Mm. so that that's an awful frustration for, for an England fan watching that but if there's one thing that World Cup has proven is that England are dangerous from set pieces, and with Harry Kane as the the talisman, we can score penalties. There wasn't a bad well, penalty taken there in that shootout. Well,
0: except for Jordan Henderson.
1: Well, I mean, Jordan Henderson's was uh, was frustrating because it's a well placed penalty. It's right in the corner, and Ospina does really well to save it. It's at a good height; you could save it. Yes, get right across. His mm-hmm. left-hand side to get there. And if he doesn't get if he goes the other way, that looks like a perfect penalty right near the post. But what a lot of the pundits were saying was he's kind of telegraphed it, he's opened up his body, he's obviously gonna go with his side foot, so it's always gonna go that way. So Ospina, well, as long as he hadn't made a decision beforehand to go the other way, he could have read that and makes a good save. But other than that, even the besides the one the Columbia missed, they were all good penalties too. So it's not like being in the Vold where their shit. It's not like it's not
0: like <laughs> the Gareth Southgate days, is it?
1: Well, I I defend <laughs> Gareth Southgate for taking a penalty in in Euro 96 six because it was down to sudden death at that point, and I I'm not sure if managers at an international stage plan out all every penalty after five as if expecting sudden death, or if it gets to five maybe six, and then it's sudden death. I think at that point in at least in Euro 96, six, it came down to volunteers, and Gareth Southgate had the balls to be like, you know what. Boss, yeah, I'll take one. I'm going to do it. Yeah. It didn't pay off, but, obviously. Yeah. But, but that at least could, it the that to could
0: very well be one of the reasons that England is so good at penalties under Gareth Southgate, right? Like, one of the reasons we've sucked at penalties for so long is because no importance has been placed on penalty taking. It's always been, oh, we score and then we sit back, right? Exactly as you're saying. And then, oh, shit, we're in penalties. And then we were completely unprepared when we get to it. But now we actually have a coach who has lived through that. Who has has been the... Whenever you talk about England messing up penalties, Gareth Southgate is the guy. and and Stuart
1: Pearce and Chris Waddle. Those are the, the big three...
0: Yeah, and now he is the manager of England, and of course we're good at penalties under him because he's not going to have the England squad going up to take penalties yeah, unprepared because he knows what happens. Exactly. So... Yeah.
1: Well, what's interesting is that I mean I'm sure even in previous shootouts where we've failed, we must have practiced. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think especially with this young, with this new, like this generation of footballers, they've taken um, heed from players like David Beckham and Cristiano Ronaldo and Ronaldinho and people who would stay behind training to practice free kicks for hours and hours and hours because, because of people like David Beckham, uh, free kicks would, were, were finally seen as the weapon that they can be and were probably, following in his wake, more more free kicks have been scored in world football than, than were before. But it stands to reason that penalties, especially if you're a young England player following on from all of these disappointments, they're probably practiced to death as well at this point. So I don't think Gareth Southgate had to step in and go, all right, lads, let's make sure we we take a shit ton of penalties and make sure we're good at it. I reckon a lot of these players have been doing it all their professional careers and could do it anyway. But what I've heard um, is interesting is that Southgate has got them studying the psychology of the penalty shootout. Mm-hmm. And it's not its not just a matter of where do you want to kick it. It's a matter of how you walk up to the penalty spot, how you stand there, what you're thinking about, what decisions you make, mm-hmm. and handling the pressure of the moment. And that, that could well have proven to be the difference, as well as, obviously, there's, like in Jordan Pickford's case, studying the opposition and figuring out where they go. And it was interesting in his, his post-match, post-match interview, Pickford said that he had obviously studied them all to death, and with every penalty, they all went the way that he expected them to go, and he went, he dived that way, except for Falcao, who went first, who had the balls to yeah. hit, it straight, hit it straight down the middle. So he came close on every penalty that he faced, apart from Falcao's, and obviously including the one that he saved. Um, so I think preparation has been made not only physically but but mentally, and I, but I think you're absolutely right. It's the Gareth Southgate um, mentality of all those years of. Pain that followed that um, failure on the on the grandest stage that he's put into this squad of players that he was like no never again and he's probably the perfect manager to manage England during a World Cup uh, penalty shootout or any penalty shootout for that matter.
0: Yeah, I think you're right and I feel I I should take the time now we'd be speaking about uh, Jordan Pickford and Trippier took a penalty as well which he scored. We said about Jamie Vardy uh, didn't get a chance to to take a penalty, but he was important in, in closing down Colombia's defense. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah, I have been uh, I have been informed and sworn to to tell you, Dave, and and the podcast that the reason that uh, Trippier and Pickford and Vardy have been so effective both for the England squad and and um, you know in the Premier League is that in the year two thousand and twelve. All three players played against Bath City. Now, <laughs> now that was a, a piece of trivia from, uh, from Alex Musselwhite. And he is always good for trivia. And that, I feel, Cheers, is, is, a, is a perfect reason. Falcao hasn't played against Bath City. And, and did no Falcao wonders. win? No. No. So, so, there we go. Why, did, why was Pickford so good? it's because he's had to weather the storm of Twerton Park. That's why, Bath City, all the way. You're welcome, England. You're welcome, England squad. So I think we've we've done the the England Columbia game to death now, Dave. England managed to win on penalties. Thank Christ. Good work by Pickford there to to save the penalty, and uh, you know, fe- uh, we got kind of lucky with the you know with hitting the crossbar at the end. But I'll take it. Yeah so, and
1: good on good on Eric Dyer as well for like in that oh, moment that high pressure moment to put his away and not and not bottle it as well that's a good yeah. one
0: too. Yeah. Well we're looking at at Harry Kane in this game. He is still the golden boot so far in the World Cup. Harry He's leading it. Has, yeah, he has scored the most goals so far although granted with three penalties. But as you were saying in given England's reputation of penalties, you know. That's not. Uh, I guess I shouldn't play it down too much. Uh, whereas the the goats, the greatest of all times, are out of the tournament already in the last sixteen. Argentina, Bye guys. Uh, see ya, Argentina, led by uh, Lionel Messi, lost four three to France. Portugal, led by Cristiano Ronaldo, lost two one to Uruguay. We we've spoken for a long time since basically the the second episode I think um, you know what the hell happened to to Messi in in this tournament, but for Argentina to go out in in the last 16th, they were in the World Cup final last time. Uh, do you have any any final words any any signing off words for for Messi and Ronaldo?
1: Wow, I mean that's that's a strange that was a strange day, and like what a way to kick off the knockout rounds as well. Those two mm. ties, especially, were pretty mouthwatering anyway. Um, but for them to happen the way that the way that they did, Messi and Argentina, we talked about them a bit in, in previous episodes. But um, what did happen eventually in their group in Group B was it Group No, not Group B, Group D were they? Um, but anyway, they they did kind of what I hoped and expected they would do, which was show up against Nigeria yeah. in their final and I, I was watching the game thinking who who's the catalyst for this because Messi was playing like Messi all of a sudden and Argentina were playing like Argentina all of a sudden against Nigeria and I'm wondering which way round is it? Where's the causality? Uh, is Messi playing well because his team are playing well or are the team playing well because Messi is playing well? It was It's it very strange because you, really, you can't really tell like, can you really chalk the efforts of the other 10 men on the team down to him? I know he's presumably and maybe justifiably one of the two best players to ever play the game but his whole attitude seemed different there's a famous picture of before the second group game during the national anthems where he had this like he's rubbing the bridge of his nose the stress of the occasion was just mm. just um just vivid on it, on his face but then as he walks out against Nigeria his head's up his chin's back his chest is out and he's G-ing up his team and maybe you can put it down to, to him that this team finally performed against Nigeria. But then what happened against France? I think unlike all of Argentina's group games, it wasn't just about Argentina not being good enough. It's that France showed up. Because we talked yeah. as well about them sort of just edging their group games, being maybe the better team, but still not setting the tournament alight. But it, it came to down to their talisman, their star, their wonder kid, Kylian Mbappe. Who hmm. absolutely set set the uh, set the pitch on fire with his pace, and he was the t- the player that the French could could gather around. And there was no talk of Antoine Griezmann in that game. There was no talk of Paul Bogba in that game. It was all just this kid is unbelievable. And you know, telling pitches from the end of that match with Messi shaking hands with Mbappe, it's like that's you know it's, that's the passing of the baton, the passing of the torch. Here's the next generation of of world class star saying to the, the 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 old generation, the old guard, the maybe the one who's passed his best, like, thanks for everything, but I'll take it from here. Mm. And it's interesting again that Messi has decided to retire from international football again. Uh, <laughs> I think he did the same after they lost the Copa America final a few years ago, and then a few days later, he'd reversed that decision. Um, but Mas- Javier Mascherano is a player that I always focus on when I'm watching Argentina. Like, I think he's been a world-class player for a number of years. And when we've talked before about why is Messi the captain of Argentina, um, is it because he's their best player? Of course. But is he actually a good leader? Is he actually a good captain? I'm not so sure. He showed of it of Nigeria, but I watch Mascherano because he's the one who seems to be the real general out on the pitch for Argentina. He's the one who's organising things, and he's the one who's talking to his players. And I thought it was, again, very telling that after that Nigeria game, the biggest hug between players was Messi and Mascherano. I think Messi owes a huge debt to Mascherano as being the on-field general. I don't think Messi has it in him to to organise the point and to shout and to get his players um, focused and keep their heads on. He's just got to go out there and be the goat and the team can rally behind him. So while those two players were very much aligned, <laughs> that Messi I think needs Mascherano on the pitch in order to be his best and Mascherano has also decided to hang up his boots internationally after this tournament, so we're seeing a real a real downturn for Argentina. But as I think I did say to you before, if would Messi uh, sorry would Argentina be better without Messi? As mm. if he sticks to his word this time, maybe we'll maybe we'll find out.
0: Well, let's uh, let's skip past uh, Ronaldo and Portugal for now, because hopefully we will have a more in depth conversation about uh, about them in. In the coming days, but again, I think we we can say we saw um, you know, a similar thing with with Portugal where Uruguay, as you said, with France, Uruguay just turned up. And... Yeah, they
1: were too good for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So H- then Edison Cavani, Cavani, and Suarez finally like combining the way that they're expected to, and that was just too much for yeah those uh, those old guard at the back uh, for Portugal.
0: Yeah. So the the next game after that, the, the next day. Was the uh, you know the easy bet? You know you're looking at you're looking at the next game going. Oh, if I'm going to stick a fiver on something, you know Spain v Russia. I mean, come on, like yeah, yeah, yeah It's the home team. Yeah, they 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 showed up in the, in the first couple of games against Saudi Arabia and and you know and Egypt. Russia really really turned it on, but it's Spain, so you know uh, you know that's that's uh, we we can move on. Wait, what? Uh, Spain manage a one all draw in normal time because Russia scores an own goal yeah Uh, then in penalties uh, Russia win how does Russia win this game (laughs) I, I don't get Iniesta is on the pitch Pique is on the pitch Ramos is on the pitch we end up Basically, with the battle of the keepers. The, the two greatest keepers in the World Cup, from my opinion. Yeah, I was going to David, say... Uh, maybe da- too, maybe David Teher and Igor Akinfeev, who is the greatest footballer from Championship Manager 2008. And if he's still playing, that still counts. Ten years <laughs> later. But this is... Nobody is favouring Russia in this game, Right. Like, yeah, the the match is being played in Moscow, so that's got to be, you know, that's got to be an advantage. But this is Spain.
1: Sure, but I mean, like, Spain weren't super convincing. I mean, to top the group, to top any World Cup group having only won one of your games, is that goes to show a lot about um, what went on in that group, really, with Spain and Portugal both being held to draws twice. Obviously, the draw against each other, and then they both drew with what you would call weaker teams. So Spain have not come into this uh, into the knockout stages flying high, and obviously what we we talked about it a lot in um, earlier episodes. Everything that went on with the Spanish camp right before the tournament started off with uh, the being sacked two days before the tournament started. I think mm-hmm. at that point, didn't we say if Spain go all the way and win, no one will no one will care that the manager got sacked because people will just say, well, Spain are that good. But if yes. Spain get knocked out early. A lot of attention and a lot of eyes are going to be turning in the direction of the Spanish FA, um, and I can imagine the Spanish media will not be uh, gentle, <laughs> in a, as they're as they're not known they're not known for being too gentle when it comes to football and their football teams. Yeah, I I think
0: that's fair. Yeah, but again, we we spoke at the very beginning, didn't we, about you know the, the ridiculous uphill battle that Spain find themselves in in this World Cup, so. Again, you're you're right. Yeah. It as um, you know, it is Spain, but they're not it's, quite yeah. what they used to be. And no. with their their with their leadership demolished, you know, you know, it, it was gonna happen, I think, at some point. And again, yeah, so it's like t- the the home team goes through. So although we 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 also said if Russia lose, we don't really care. This is the one World Cup where if the home team go out, then fine. But you yeah, know, but they're, they're
1: starting to grow on me a little bit. They're starting to grow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they're, they, they've uh, done. they're they're battling amazingly well, and like and to come off of a bit of a reality check, having their wings clipped a little bit against Uruguay uh... was probably the best thing that could have happened to them going into the knockouts so stages against Spain. Going, okay, this is what happens when we play against a stronger team than, with all due respect, uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Mm. What can we do against Spain and? and they did it <laughs> but how much of it is down to I think you've got to give your Russia a lot of credit for that but then yeah you're looking at what's going on in Spanish football right now and comparing it as well to what's happening with German football right now these two great behemoths of uh, modern world football have both floundered and the, the old guard are being their their chinks are being shown the chinks in their armour have become become visible um, and you know they're human after all mm. Well,
0: then we move on to Croatia Denmark, which kind of ended the the way everyone expected it to. It was kind of a you know, an exciting first five minutes, and then a drag <laughs> for one hundred and twenty five following minutes uh, until the penalty shootouts. Um, I'm sad to see heartthrob Kasper Schmeichel go out.
1: Oh yeah, that oh. so so sad for him because he was just unbelievable, like one of the best goalkeeping performances at this tournament and for him to still have to go home with his dad in the stands as well but I think I think he can take heart knowing that he did absolutely everything he could oh yeah
0: absolutely and didn't he save didn't he save like a 90th minute penalty or an extra time penalty
1: just before penalties started he did he's made an amazing penalty save and there's an amazing shot of his of Peter Schmeichel arguably one of the best goalkeepers of all time Uh, one of my favourite goalkeepers of all time um, like roar getting to his feet and roaring with yeah. pride and support and like get in there my son yeah. oh that was that guy brought a to my eye I've got a, yeah. I have a weird thing about dad's son stuff like in movies <laughs> so with well, see, seeing Peter Schmeichel get up and cheer after his son saved the penalty in the World Cup I was like oh he loves maybe, his boy
0: you know in, in 11 days Dave this podcast has to finish it's the World Cup final maybe our next podcast needs to be a father-son podcast where we analyze father-son <laughs> relationships from movies and real life oh, and we well, just spend you... the entire time crying
1: yeah if you want to get audio of me bowling then yeah sure let's do that
0: <laughs> so let's uh let's skip straight on to perhaps the most heartbreaking of all of these games i think for some for some for some so it we uh The first half is is pretty boring. Um, Then 48 minutes in, Japan get a goal against Belgium. And we're thinking, wait, what? Yeah, we're thinking, holy shit. Yeah, then 52 minutes in, Japan get another goal against Belgium. And we're thinking, wait, what? And then with just 20 minutes of the match to go... Oh, hi, Belgium.
1: Yeah, they, they remembered that uh, they have to win uh, to go yes. through. But I mean, all credit to Japan. They were absolutely incredible. And that mm. second goal, Inouye's goal from the edge of the box, that was a peach. Really beautiful. I, it's, yeah. I love a, a shot of a of a goal where the ball doesn't spin. Like, I don't know. Mm. I can't. I mean, I I'm no great footballer. I can't, and I definitely can't do that. That whole knuckleball thing where the ball just moves through the air like a spaceship, like no spin. <laughs> oh, oh, just amazing. That, that gets football hearts are fluttering. But yeah, I guess Belgium. But then even Belgium's first goal back, that in header, he didn't mean that. He was trying to get it back into the box for someone else to nod it in. And uh, so their momentum, it, the momentum turns in their favour on a bit of a fluke. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's just because they're in the same group as us and they're another one of the favourites now for the tournament. But, yeah, I'm not sure he meant to do that. No, it looked, I, I, it looked I, nice, I thought but... the same
0: thing. Yeah, it was just un, a really unfortunate by the Japanese keeper there as well. He's like, as you're saying, I don't think he intends to do it and the keeper definitely doesn't think that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, no um, way. And the, yeah, that, that was unfortunate. And then F- okay, Fellaini actually does something. <laughs> um, that, was, that was exciting and then in the 94th minute again oh, the, so the 90, this World Cup f- for is been the most exciting World Cup for 80 minutes plus right like I, I think for the from you know 1 minute to 79 minutes this World Cup has been boring <laughs> but then 80 minutes to the end of the game it has been the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen um, again, A 94th minute goal To, to win it for Belgium and, and put them through So heartbreaking for Japan Because yeah, again but... They had the chance To maybe try and get through Extra time And take it down to penalties And you know maybe scrape it that way But it just wasn't a beam
1: Yeah I think Looking at the at the beginning Of the tournament Before this all started Nobody was thinking Japan are going to get To the knockout stages yeah. And even more so Nobody thought They would almost Get to the quarterfinals That the Japan were not In anybody's mind To, to even get out Of that group let alone yeah. put a real put a real scare into a team like belgium yeah. so so yeah good on them and yeah you're right the number of even the number of injury time goals in this tournament has been staggering so it's great yeah. that, that that kind of drama exists but that you know us as uh you know we've talked to a lot about being in favor of the underdog Absolutely. you kind of you kind of feel sorry for japan but you know belgium are definitely a strong team and the teams that can can stand up to big challenges and stay focused and not get rattled and play and create chances right until the final whistle. They're the ones that, that get through. And we've seen that with uh, Brazil and their last um, group game, getting a couple of goals against Costa Rica right at the end. And, mm. uh, in- and England against both against uh, Panama and against Colombia faced with real like real aggression and violence and mind games and underhanded tactics just keeping their cool and not rising to it and seeing it through to the end and yeah that kind of pressure can get the better of a lot of teams so i think those are definitely the there the seems to be at least the teams that are uh have what it takes to to get results even when it seems unlikely or to yeah. at least, or at the very least seems hard <laughs> mm. So
0: then we are left with the two matches that I consider to have been the most boring um, of of the last 16. Sweden versus Switzerland, I was hoping, was going to look boring on paper, but then actually turn out to be, you know, to surprise me. Yeah. And it didn't. Um, Switzerland, I was, you know, I was rooting for my Kosovo boys. And we yeah. were well, flipping they... the
1: birds from from across the world. I,
0: I was flipping the bird t- towards the TV, like come on boy come on albania um <laughs> and you know nothing happened sweden gives scored a goal in the 65th minute and you know whatever they got through and then finally well the last one we are going to speak about uh, for today this was my pick for the best game of the uh, of the last 16 and it turned out to be a bit of a shit show it and, was that that uh, was the
1: only one that we watched uh, simultaneously wasn't it we were, we were yes. speaking as it happened and it was like well of all the games we could have actually watched together from across the world yeah. via technology and the internet it was a bit like oh something's yeah. I think gonna happen soon maybe I don't yeah.
0: know yeah Brazil Mexico a 2-0 Brazil win with Neymar winning the Razzie award yet again yeah Uh really embarrassing it is it is embarrassing um, because uh, again we, we expect it for, a, for more than a certain extent right like of course we expect uh, players in the way the football has gone now to you know to roll around on the floor like you know they, they yeah. that's what they do it's a bit. this it's was a bit playing, next yeah. level this was like uh, like actually watching it's cringeworthy Crazy, Absolutely, not it? it's not like looking at the TV and going, Oh come on, get up. It was that and then it got past that point to being like, Oh dude, your mum's watching. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't you have kids?
1: You know. Like, do you really want to see the, do you want your kids to see their father behaving like this? Or is, are you mm. trying to send a message of this is how modern football works and this is how you get an advantage? Which cause even that is just a bit despicable. But yeah. if I can just quickly say If you can defend him in any way, this kind of thing, he's got to be one of those players who gets fouled a dozen times every single time he plays a game. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure this has happened to him throughout his life playing football. What happens when... It must happen when you're one of those ultimately skillful players, and I've known a few, and I'm definitely not one of them myself, but you're going to get kicked. If your feet move that quickly and you can bamboozle your position, they're going to just start do it like acting desperate to try and stop you. And you're probably going to get fouled a lot. You're probably going to get kicked a lot. You're probably going to get pushed over a lot. So it takes a lot, I think of restraint and show a lot of character to just rise to it. And sorry, not rise to it, rise above it and remain calm and remain strong and be a, a good example. Harry Kane has done that. I think for England where he's being fouled left right, and center, but he just gets up. He gets yeah. up and carries on. He doesn't win, he doesn't roll around. Um, I think there was a stat, actually, that in the first game, maybe it was um, Brazil's first uh, group game, where he got fouled, I think, the second most amount of times that any player has ever been fouled in one game in a World Cup. And I think the number one time was Gary Lineker. (laughs) I think in one World Cup, he got fouled like 10 or 11, 12 times in one match. So if if you're Neymar and your career is spent being expected to, to perform magic on the world stage, scoring great goals, going by players, showing skill, But you're constantly, well, your main obstacle is your opposition lumping you one every time they get anywhere near you. There's going to be some frustration there. And I'm not condoning how he behaved in this instance. I think that whole feigning injury, falling down, trying to get other players in trouble is the worst part of football. And I would eradicate it in a second if I had the power. But as a human being, you can understand that sometimes you must just get fed up and be like, well, if no one is stopping this from happening to me, what can I do? To try and bring it to someone's attention. And so that well, overacted. He, he
0: certainly managed that. He certainly yeah, managed to, to get attention.
1: It did get attention, but yeah, the problem with that all that 4 1 where he went down right on the touchline and a Mexico player comes over to try and get the ball. And it looks like the Mexico player did maybe stand on him a bit. Like I think his toes, hmm. his foot, first couple of studs made contact with Neymar's uh, ankle or whatever, but it wasn't hard. It wasn't a stamp. And then that roly poly shit that he was doing it looked if it ever seen like a turtle that gets turned over and can't write itself yeah it was like that but dialed up it was absolutely ridiculous and i hope that he can look back on it himself and be like oh the whole world saw me do that that's a bit embarrassing or mm-hmm. and i really hope he's not the kind of guy who watches the back and goes look what that guy did to me and yeah. completely ignores the spectacle of himself that he made
0: yeah well speaking of uh trying to get attention Three of the Mexican players dyed their hair blonde for this match.
1: <laughs> for some reason, did, yeah.
0: yeah. Did you manage to find out why? I couldn't find any reason why. Uh, maybe they just they just fancied it.
1: Maybe they just fancied it. I think there was the some of the media said that it was to take the mick out of Neymar's um, noodle haircut thing that right had in the, that right. the beginning, which which he's uh, a, which he apparently realised was a bit of a mistake and he's dyed his hair back to its normal colour, but maybe that was a bit of a, a bit of a practical joke a bit of mind games to try and wind him up a little bit yeah but i do sh-
0: it. it is a shame to uh to see mexico go out at this point because again they were so happy when south korean uh the south koreans got that victory against germany and um put them through to the next round yeah um do you have any any comments on the mexicans for for uh just how they you know they didn't even get a goal in this game.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, they, I think they were one of the teams that impressed, um, at least in the, the first two group games. Uh, obviously, <laughs> surprising the world by beating Germany. And then they got to come through a tough tie against South Korea. But then maybe they started to run out of steam. They always seem to be working very hard. And I think they captured a lot of hearts and minds with their, with their work rate. Um, but then going... Out of uh, the well, not going out, but finishing the group with a 3 0 loss to Sweden. I don't mm. think it, after those first two games, I don't think anyone was really expecting that. After Sweden had like again just scraped past South Korea and had marginally lost to Germany with like, again a ninety-fifth minute goal from Tony Cruz or wh- whatever time it was. Um, so maybe it was a case that they have run out of steam a little bit, um, and but or, or similar to um, to to Russia in that they. Well, no, the opposite, I suppose, to Russia. They had their tough game, which which you know obviously uh, gave them loads of momentum and confidence. And then they they realised that they... Oh, I wonder, if you, when you, if you play your f- toughest game first, when it comes to your second game, which is arguably weaker, you think, oh, well, we beat Germany. Maybe we don't have to try so hard. And then South Korea, like I say, is edged. And then if that attitude carries on to Sweden, then they get trounced and they only go through because South Korea pull off one of the best World Cup stories ever, and I'm still a little bit excited about that. That was so much fun. Yeah, um, that was great. Yeah, but um, yeah, maybe the this, steam this run out of Mexico a little bit, and as much as we like them, I don't think they really had much to offer um, going forward, only scoring, I think it's worth three goals in the whole group stage, and um, yeah, none against Sweden, none against Brazil. So it's a shame, but Brazil deserved to win. Yeah,
0: frankly it's not surprising that that the Mexicans are so exhausted because now I'm going to swap over to the other part of uh, of our podcast date. So the political, oh, finally ana- you've the been political analysis me talk about of football
1: for so long, Yeah, God. We've
0: got here 54 minutes of football and that's it. I'm I'm going to rail now. This podcast is going to be 2 hours long because I'm finally oh, getting my chance.
1: I can't wait. There we go.
0: Well, Mexico has just uh Three days ago, so just uh, around the same time as as the match took place, gone through its largest general election ever in its history. This wow. was this was not only a vote uh, for for the uh, the president. This is also a vote for the Congress, for local elections, for uh, the lower house and the Senate. This is mayors and everything all happening at once there are 18,000 elected positions open uh, wow. on one day 18,000 how how insane is that that's, that's ridiculous if, uh, imagine you have a country and then on one day 18,000 of the people in charge of the country from your mayor to the president of the country could all change in, in a single day um, it's Absolutely. essentially a democratic revolution, uh, yeah. and it has been violent. This has been one of the most violent uh, elections in Mexican history. More than 130 candidates and uh, political correspondents, journalists, 130 murders um, of, of political candidates and people involved in the election.
1: Holy crap.
0: Uh, it's been crazy. and But one of the reasons that it has been so crazy is the way that the Mexican uh, the Mexican presidency is kind of is set up. So, much like the American presidency, uh, the, the Mexicans have a term limit. Whereas in the UK, you could be the prime minister for as long as people vote you in. But in Mexico, you can only be the president for six years. So once you've been president for six years, you have to go out and someone else um, has to come in. But while that is the case, in the last one hundred years, only two political parties have held that office so Although the presidents change every six years, the actual party in charge has been essentially the same for over a hundred years. There have been very very minor uh minor changes over over that time, and this has seen uh you know the infamous rise of the cartels and political corruption. Uh, within Mexico, to the point where it's it's a literal joke um, within within Mexico itself. Um, It's got so extreme that last month, Coca-Cola left Mexico. They shut down their bottling plant in Mexico because of cartel threats. Then, uh, two weeks ago, Pepsi shut down their bottling plant in Mexico after gang threats. Right? Like, this is... An Un- unprecedented um, rise in democracy, but also in the anti-democratic movements by uh, the, you know, the very cartels that are trying, that have, that have uh, profited from the corruption. So the the person who won the election, Andreas Manuel Lopez Abador, uh, yeah, Abador uh, he, he's more commonly known by his initials, he just goes by AMLO. Um, and no. though he was the, the president of Mexico City, you know the, the capital city, he was the president of, of Mexico City uh, in the year 2000. He's already tried to run for president twice uh, and failed. He, he, he did win this time. And what's nuts, what's crazy about this is he won with 53% of the vote. Well, rounded up 54% of the vote. His nearest opposition got 23% of the vote. Like this is a runaway election uh, that that he has won and he's had mass popular support that I keep seeing on the BBC. They keep calling him a left wing politician Um, that it kind of makes sense to a certain point because Mexico is a country where 40 percent of its population lives in poverty which is again a- absolutely insane and largely tied to the the mass corruption that that is rampant throughout throughout the country um but AMLO came into this election saying I'm going to get rid of corruption I'm going to take down the cartels I'm going to you know all the things that the mexican people um want to hear and this is why it's kind of strange for the BBC to be consistently calling him left wing because his policies have been somewhat difficult to nail down he's basically saying what everybody wants him to say and being a little bit more fluid with what you know with what he actually means he's been, been he's been compared in western media like other western media that i've seen a little bit more to donald trump in that not his policies aren't the same as trump and one of the things that has garnered him so much support in mexico is being extraordinarily anti-trump like none of the mexicans leaders as i'm sure you can imagine none of the mexicans are like god that donald trump he's just what a solid guy right but yeah but amlo has been like leading the the anti-trump charge because that's what mexican people want him to do and he says i'm gonna get rid of corruption don't listen to what the my opposition say about me i'm the guy who's gonna look after you but what he actually plans to do has been uh you know he hasn't been a hundred percent open and uh with you know with actually what his plan is um but again he uh he was elected on on the first of july and it's gonna be interesting to see what happened again there were uh there were massive protests against uh you know the the um the children the the uh the immigrant children that the trump was and the, the Americans were taking away from their families. That ended up being a large part of you know other large issue in in the run up to the campaign. And other candidates became even more hardline. The person who came second uh, was a, a right winger named uh, Anaya. Uh, Anaya actually came and compared Trump to the Nazis just before the election comes up. You know, trying to you know really trying to get some uh, you know trying to some get some votes there. But again, in Forty-eight candidates were murdered towards the end of of, of this campaign. Um, it's it's unbelievable that in, in a insane. modern a modern democratic society that that this is uh, this is been uh, you know this is still able to happen. And I, I think a lar- in a, a large part, without wanting to get too overtly political about it, uh, a lot of that is down to the Americans and an American drug policy and. That it has just been this boom in the, this stronghold now that that they have, where the cartels are essentially untouchable because if you try, you if you are a candidate and you run on an anti cartel campaign, they'll kill you. Like, and that's not just you know an, an open threat where maybe you know in the 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 nineteen twenties in the states during prohibition. If you wanted to run against Prohibition in Chicago or New York, maybe your, your Al Capone's or your Mafia, you know, they would have made a threat about whacking you. But, you know, the heat that it brings down, murdering a political candidate, is so large that the Mafia would have made that threat and then probably not followed through on it because they would have been crushed by the police. But in this case, they'll do it. They will kill you. Um, and... That is, you know, a large shadow to be going over 18,000 18, elections all on the same day. Um, to know that, you know, that there yeah. is a, you know, there is a real threat. And candidates were murdered on the day, on the day of the election, they they were killed.
1: Um, That's just like which... almost un- unimaginable. Like even it, we were, worried... yeah, yeah. The last British or oh, English, it's a British, British general election. We were worried about. Um, like vote tampering or Russia getting their fingers involved and whatnot, but then, you know, the people running weren't fearing for their lives. you yeah.
0: Well, do you remember it just just before the just before the Brexit election, uh, the Labour MP Joe Cox was uh, was murdered by someone yeah, yeah. who said, you know, uh, you know, kill the traitors. You know, a, a right wing British nationalist killed the Labour MP Joe Cox, and it was. Awful, and the whole of the UK was just just. It was a scarring memory. Yeah, it was yeah. like when was the last time a you know a, a British MP was was murdered? Like not for a long time uh, before Joe Cox, but in in Mexico, a hundred and thirty people killed in the run up to this election. You know, it takes real courage to uh, to stand up to that, and. I don't want to suggest that, again, this is the kind of thing that plays on your mind if you are, um, you, know, a Mexican citizen in Russia watching the World Cup. But this, is, this isn't, you know a world away. This is what is going to affect your home. This is the future of your country playing out in exactly the same time you're supposed to be, you know, caring about football. No, yeah, you know, yeah, it would be really nice if we could go through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. But um, also, I really hope nobody gets murdered in the general election,
1: you know. Yeah, it's, or yeah. maybe if we have to go home, then at least I can go make sure my family are safe. And exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Other things to make, because there may be relations or friends or people that they went to school with, who are, of the football players, I mean, who are involved in this thing. And just, if you hear that number... 130 um, murdered in the run election. You're like, I maybe I know some of them. Maybe I was going to vote for one of them. You know. Yeah, what well, what what is absolutely crazy
0: is the the murder rate in Mexico has doubled since 2014. In doubled. four years. In four years, I think they they said last 2017 was 25,000 murders in in Whoa. one year. Which works? I think it worked out to around forty murders per hundred thousand people. I, I need I need to double check that, um, just to be sure. But I'm I'm pretty yeah I'm pretty sure that uh, that it was around that number, which is unprecedented, and that is why when Amlo wins this election, the he is I I. I should have mentioned this earlier. You know, I said that Mexico has been dominated by two different political parties for a hundred years. Yeah. And Lo is not from neither of these parties. And oh. that is why this is the first election where, yes, he is a prominent political figure who's been known for, for 20 years, you know, as, as a, a prominent uh, Mexican politician. But he is one he's the first person, the first president who is not from one of these two main parties And why does he win with fifty-four percent of the vote? Because people are terrified. Because Mexico, again, largely, uh, largely runs off of its uh, oil and and oil exports. But oil prices have dropped, and that's affected the economy. Uh, When again, forty percent of your population are living in poverty, and they are terrified for their lives. This is when that kind of change happens. So. I don't think it's really a, a shock or a surprise that, um, you know, the the Mexican fans who have gone over to Russia or the football team themselves kind of have something else on their mind when they're, you know, when they're going out to play the play the match.
1: Yeah, you might be right. I mean, they're, but then they're the people who, they're, sorry, they're victors. Brazil, that's not a country that's especially known for its uh, political stability. Or uh, low rates of crime and corruption.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. That is another Brazil. Uh, I've I've left deliberately on the assumption that they are going to continue through this tournament because I'm really looking forward yeah. to doing a doing a dissection of Brazil um, as we go on. Because they, again, wow. they have an election coming up soon that has been, uh, you know, has been very influenced by by far right politics. And whereas in Mexico, every candidate has come forward and denounced Trump. The one, the leading far right candidate in Brazil, has made a big point of saying, "Hey, maybe Trump isn't all bad. Maybe we should adopt some of these ideas here in Brazil." Oh, so, geez. yeah that that's going to be uh, that's going to be interesting to talk about.
1: Yeah, for sure. I look forward to that.
0: But this is uh, this is the end of, of the last sixteen. They are finished, Dave. Uh, we're we're down to well, how many teams? Eighteen. Teams? Eight more teams left. Yeah. What about the in these quarterfinals? Is there is there one that you're looking forward to?
1: Um. Four. I don't think it's hard to say what's gonna happen. I don't think um the first two, the France, Argentina, Europe by Portugal, were particularly predictable on the way t- they turned out. I think we mm. expected Brazil to beat Mexico. We expected Belgium to beat Japan, but Japan gave them a real run for their money, and that was impressive. Very few people would have expected Spain to go out to Russia. Um, I think we could say we were expecting Croatia to beat Denmark although I would have expected personally they would have done it in normal time and not needed extra time and penalties to knock out Denmark who again have showed up and, and done well but Croatia were so strong in their group that yeah. I'm impressed I'm impressed that Denmark managed to hold them for that long um, Sweden, Switzerland could have gone either way and like you say that was one of the more boring games with only one goal and um, not, much else, not much else happening and yeah the tension and the drama of Colombia or England was was something to behold. So it's who who can say what's gonna happen next. I mean, Russia are a bit of a surprise package going into the quarterfinals and Croatia, like I say, haven't been good in the groups, uh, but they're not so not so uh comfortable in the round of sixteen. That can end up being a good a good tie. i mean, I fear for England against Sweden just because mm. I think they will the world sees that as an easier tie than England versus Colombia. So I just hope England go out there and go, if we're going to make sure we win, let's let's roll over them. Let's just hit them. Let's just see if they can withstand our attacks because Sweden didn't show an awful lot of threat going forward, um, either against Switzerland or in the group stages. And I think their centre-back f- uh, captain, Andreas Grankvist, has scored two of their goals, two penalties. So hopefully, I think that England's defence is fairly strong um, as long as we re- maintain our concentration. I think our, we've the problems we've had um defensively have been from errors so i would just hope that uh, we can stay focused and then let our attackers just get get the goals um i think you're looking at the top half of the draw for the for the real heavyweight clashes uruguay versus france if france do what they did against argentina um, and uruguay continue to be strong like they have then that could be a real a real dramatic event and brazil belgium considered to be two of the best teams maybe two yeah. of the favorites who knows what could happen there? Which Brazil's gonna show up? Which Belgium's gonna show up. Mm. You know, so that's a hard one to predict as well. So I'm i I'm so glad that of all the years we've decided to do a World Cup podcast <laughs> since we've known each other, we've done it this time when it's been such a interesting um tournament, both from a footballing perspective and as you've illuminated to uh, to me, to myself and our listeners, are uh, all the political uh, um I was going to say machinations. much sure that's the right word, but the political toing and froing and dynamics that are involved in in it as well have been have been fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, it has been been really exciting. And one of the things again that I like about this so much is that, as you're saying, it is kind of top heavy. You know, you have these these clashes between Uruguay and France and Brazil and Belgium, which could very easily have been the final. Normally, you know, like that. Those are. To, if that Uruguay and France had been in the final, I wouldn't have been surprised, or Brazil and Belgium especially. But with a weaker lower half, it really gives us the opportunity to see weaker nations, or you know, not traditionally semi-final nations, make it further in the World Cup. And Yeah. yeah you know, like... But if you had said at the beginning, oh, Russia stand a real chance of getting through to the semi-final... I, you know, that there is no way that I would have, I would have considered <laughs> that, or or Sweden, or England. Again, like the chances of England getting through to the semi final now is pretty serious. Um, which I, you know, I, I would have told you that football was staying as far away from home as it possibly could, but <laughs> you know, now it seems like there's, you know, there's actually something, uh, you know, there's something really exciting going on there, and it's not going to yeah. be a Brazil Germany final, you know, and that which is. Great. yeah that's that could like a... be, it could be croatia you know the like, thing. how, yeah, you're how right. amazing is... is that that it could be croatia in the world cup final i i think that's what makes this world cup um so fantastic is that you know no matter which one of these bottom four countries makes it to the final we never would have predicted that it was any of them at the beginning and yeah you're, you're absolutely yeah.
1: right yeah
0: well i think that seems like a pretty a really uh perfect place to to end the podcast for now uh again now we as we said before we have 11 days until the world cup final and our podcasts are are done Uh, are there will be finished dave oh no we'll never be finished um. oh that's nice that's nice not us not not you and i (laughs) so uh if you've listened to this please Share it to anyone who has any interest in the World Cup at all, or anyone who has any interest in politics at all. Um, get, get some uh, you know, get some people listening. And uh, thank you very much both for, for lending your ears. And we will see you again next time with, uh, with the roundup of the quarterfinals. ta